Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Creppy, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. That's, of course, where you can find all my work chronicling the Ducks, as we have been all season and will continue to, obviously, this week. Uh, and hopefully for the Ducks' perspective, uh, from the Ducks' perspective, you would hope that it would be the week after as well with a Pac-12 championship game trip which Oregon can earn a bid to the conference title game for a fourth straight season with either a win this week or with a Washington loss. Uh, But we will obviously see what happens first in Corvallis on Saturday and then uh, everything thereafter, well, the Washington game thereafter and and plenty of other things there before uh, in what could be a, a weekend where several pivotal uh, outcomes could come down uh, but you deal with the the first and foremost uh, and the uh, the moment and the magnitude of the rivalry and those sorts of things first before you start getting any more grandiose because the absolute, if there's a 1% chance kind of pipe dream of Oregon somehow, some way, managing to climb the college football playoff rankings just enough to put itself into the discussion, uh, you know, 10 days from now, give or take, uh, would be rather extreme. So before we start getting into extreme conversations, which we can certainly feel free to have next week if Oregon were to win and get a whole lot of help and other things, sure. But until we get there, no reason to go down that road too, too far. The bottom line is Oregon managed to, and I say managed because this was, as we will get into, anything but a foregone conclusion. This was not a foregone conclusion at all uh, that they were going to beat Utah. And the reason why many of us, myself included, I can only speak for myself, uh, picked Utah to win the game was because of the uncertainty surrounding Bonix's status. And only on, from what you hear from the team themselves, but uh, again, I can only speak for myself, getting word Friday night, from my case, uh, obviously the team was aware a little bit earlier on Friday, that Knicks was able to do enough on Friday to where they felt comfortable with him at least giving it enough of a go in pregame to where they had, you know, real confidence that he could play. That wasn't until the day before the game. And obviously Dan Lanning alluded to it after the game saying, yeah, Pac-12 after dark actually helped us in this case because he could get treatment all day. If that game's at noon, I'm not saying he doesn't play. I'm just saying it's made a little bit more difficult. That's for sure. And, as everybody obviously saw, without question, well below 100% last week. And Knicks didn't run, with the exception of the final play, uh, he basically barely moved outside the pocket at all, only on a couple of throws. So with that said, the performance that he put forth as a whole is one that I don't like getting into comparisons because I think for one, you have all the you have the whole offseason to get into comparisons. And depending on how the season ends, I mean, look, if Oregon goes on to play for a conference title, win a conference title, go to a Rose Bowl, win a Rose Bowl, then the magnitude of the moment grows and can grow exponentially. So making that comparison now may or may not be you know, it's not a total picture yet. I think once you have a greater understanding of 
uh, context in terms of what it meant for the season, it can add to, well, it certainly won't take away from, but it can even further enhance the magnitude of the moment uh, as the stakes are obviously really high. So again, that that's a discussion for a whole offseason. we got plenty of time for that. Appreciating what somebody is willing to do in the moment. Again, if you're a fan, I, I, I certainly hope if you're an Oregon fan, you, you appreciate it. Uh, as a neutral observer, again, I can only speak for myself. I just appreciate uh, when athletes put themselves through extraordinary circumstances and when it is those tests of metal uh, and again we throw around words in, in athletics and sports like resiliency and toughness and grit and gutsy and determination all these terms get thrown around so loosely at times that they almost start to lose a certain degree of impact and meaning and they become so so widely handed out that it's almost like do you even know what it means anymore in some cases it's it's i'm sure somebody will come up with a, a better term than than i but it's almost like the goat complex now in sports everyone's the goat everybody's a goat everybody's the greatest if everybody's the greatest then no one's the greatest well, if everybody's gutsy, if everybody's tough, if everybody deals with adversity, the other all-encompassing term in sports, then how do you even differentiate anymore? And when you see circumstances and you see moments and performances uh, like Bo Nix had, and knowing with greater clarity exactly how much he was putting himself through during the week, and getting treatment three and four times a day, all week long. Just and, and yeah, going going to practice. Yes, he was at practice when Dan Lanning said it last Wednesday night on their in-house radio show. Said, "Yeah, he's been at practice. Yeah, he was at practice. He, that was a factual statement. Wasn't doing much of anything, but he was there. Yeah, yeah. So to the point that yes, obviously the comments from Chris Hudson." Earlier on last Wednesday, saying, well, obviously, Bo's not playing. So, you know, next man up, here's Ty Thompson. Uh, it obviously registered with a lot of people. It moved betting markets. Read into that what you will in terms of uh, whatever that may mean for, for Hudson and future interviews. But putting that aside, he was being forthright in that, hey, Quarterback wasn't doing much of anything. Now, whether or not, you know, again, what should have been said, shouldn't have been said, I'm, 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 that's not the issue. The point is, what was happening on the practice field on Tuesday and Wednesday was enough of an indicator to offensive players that Knicks really wasn't going to play. And like I say, it didn't change until Friday, which is not a padded practice day that is basically a walkthrough day and and some light individual workouts if players so wish in this case Nick's did some individual stuff and was able to test out and and put enough of a test run on his foot that he felt comfortable enough to go 
And then you see it again, getting treatment all day Saturday, leading into a night game, to put yourself through a week-long hours upon hours of time in the training room, getting all the various treatments involved in order to play through a pretty painful injury to play in a game of extremely high stakes significance to both teams. You know, if Utah wins that game for all intents and purposes, they've clinched a spot in the Pac-12 championship and Oregon for all intents and purposes is eliminated. Shoes on the other foot or, and I don't even mean to go to the, the foot cliche, but Oregon wins, and now Utah is all but mathematically eliminated. Practically is eliminated. And Oregon is in the driver's seat where when they're in or a Washington loss and they're in. This is a transfer quarterback. This is a player who is coming to Oregon for a short period of time. And whether that's one or two years, that's another conversation for another day. Here for a short period of time. And to me, again, as a neutral observer of all of this, in the moment and in the individual performance, to witness and chronicle and capture, try to capture and do justice to uh, when a young person, when a young athlete is willing to put themselves through that. And he wasn't the only one, obviously. I mean, multiple offensive linemen and Ryan Walk starting at center and Alex Forsythe trying to give it a go and Chase Coder trying to give it a go and Stephen Jones coming back from injury and TJ Bass and Taki Taimani clearly dealing with some nicks, bruises, dings, whatever, you know, whatever, again, generic term you want to attach to it, but getting some extra work in before the game, pregame wise, stretching and whatnot. To get through a game like that, where the stakes are so high against a really good defense where it was quite literally freezing the entire night and have until the late interception a really tremendous performance. I mean, one one touchdown or not. I mean, if that... If the interception doesn't happen and Oregon scores a touchdown, whether Bo passes for it or not, on that drive... One, the game is over. And two, his efficiency rating would have just been bananas, uh, all things considered. Where his mobility is basically rendered moot. And he has to be a pocket passer all night. He had a, until the late interception, which was a great play by Clark Phillips III. Uh, I mean, a spectacular play. You can argue about whether or not the ball should have been thrown or not. That's beside the point. It was still an incredible play by the defense. Knicks had a tremendous performance, one that certainly should be embraced and respected by this fan base uh, in the here and now, and one that can only grow in terms of its appreciation with time. As I say, I don't like to get into comparisons in the moment because I think time allows for a greater degree of context and clarity into all of that, for one. And two... Until you really get the the benefit of time and and legend and lore and and understanding exactly severity of injuries and those things, it's just kind of an awkward conversation to be having in the first place. The bottom line is, 
The guy put himself through a whole lot in order to play in a really big moment. And it certainly wasn't just for him. And as I mentioned, to me, as a transfer quarterback, where not only was the prior three years of his career, but the prior three years of a lifelong journey that got him to Auburn in the first place, where his career has been and will be defined and remembered. For all of those who have and will in the weeks ahead, because the portal window is about to heat up a whole lot here in a couple of weeks, when the, the new transfer portal window opens, you know the newly enacted window, there will be a whole lot of conjecture and a whole lot of talking heads and analysts and you name it, former players all over television weighing in about the good, bad, ups, downs, perils, and pitfalls of the transfer portal and players' commitment to the team and the program and NIL and all this other stuff. And the instances that won't get nearly enough attention are the instances and the moments like you saw Saturday night from Bo Nix against Utah at Autzen Stadium. And, he, and that's not the only one. I'm using it as an example for the point of the conversation. Plenty of others. Plenty of others have obviously transferred and been in Heisman contention and played for championships and, and all those sorts of things. Obviously, everybody's going to bring up Joe Burrow and all those kinds of things too. My point is, is that those aren't the tales. Those aren't the great upside moments. Those aren't the positive outlook of how a situation might just plain be better for a player, for the program that they left, and for the program that they go to if they part ways. And that's not always a bad thing. It's not always a judgment of somebody's character. And it's not in a negative light. And it's not always for a payday in NIL. And even if it were any of those things, that doesn't mean it has to be a negative either. College athletes have a finite time in their college careers. It's their careers. They are free to pursue it and plot their course how they see is best fit for them. And they are free to also make mistakes along the way. That's part of it. Oh well, they left my team. They formed my team. Well, you're if you're a fan, you're you're gonna obviously see through through those glasses. That's fine. But when you're a fan and a transfer comes in and has that kind of contribution, and by the way, not the only one, obviously. When a player comes in as a transfer and has that kind of enormous impact on your team, which you saw on both sides in this game, Knicks, Whittington. Irving, Gonzalez, Taimani, Rogers, heck, Bennett Williams, via a junior college, albeit, but nevertheless. For Utah, Tavion Thomas. And these are guys where they start their careers elsewhere. 
they end up becoming huge figures and have huge moments in their games, in their moment, in, in their later uh, schools and careers and, and spots. Why do we always, have, you know, for, for those who default to the portal is a bad thing in, in college, and this is, and here's all the reasons why. I don't think you hear nearly enough of the instances and the moments of when these players do end up on the upside. You know, if not for some major transfers in a positive direction for some of these programs, does LSU win a championship and Burrow win a Heisman? Does USC have the season it's having this season? Does Oregon, does Washington, does Utah win a Pac-12 championship last season without Tavion Thomas there? And there's plenty, again, obviously plenty of other instances. My point is simply that to me, what Nix's performance, not just because he's been a great player for Oregon all season, but what his performance on Saturday night showed was a level of commitment to the greater cause, to an adopted program that speaks louder about him as a person and as a player. When all you hear sometimes about transfers in college athletics is about, it's about me, it's about money, it's about selfishness, it's about, even if it's about winning, fine, but winning at the new place, not toughing it out at the old place. Well, here is a guy who is willing to put himself through what he does at an adopted program which has worked out very well both ways where he has become obviously a significantly better player in this offense and here at Oregon than he was at Auburn with greater freedom, with greater understanding of this offense, with greater opportunity, frankly, with the best offensive line he's had in front of him with, I think probably the best assortment of skill players around him, all those things. And yes, you know, top to bottom, also against, comparatively speaking, top to bottom, some weaker competition compared to the SEC. No question. No question. But this has worked out awfully nicely. And we'll never be able to know the answer in terms of, well, what if we weren't here and who would be starting with? You don't know because if they wouldn't have landed Knicks in the portal, then who knows who they could have, would have, should have. And it, it's a moot point. The 2022 Oregon football season, which was hanging in the balance last week, reeling after a gutting loss that switched in the final minutes against the rival the week before, was put on the shoulders of a transfer who, when he left 11 months earlier, said he wanted to go to a place where quarterback was the missing piece to a puzzle and where he could find achievement, but he could help others get to success. And you saw it on the field. For those who saw the video that got shared around Twitter from a fan who was uh, in one of the first rows near the Oregon sideline, Clearly, during the second half, you saw it on the sideline of the field during the game from Knicks, having a really pointed and impassioned message 
to the offense, to the offensive line and skill play. The whole offense is over there, and he is, I mean, granted it's loud in the building and stuff, but, I mean, he's really shouting and and letting things be said and heard. Say so those to me, that is something that to me as a fan base are the things that should be appreciated and underscored. And if you want to say respected, if that's such a thing, if, if that's something you, you wish to convey, because obviously it doesn't have to be that way. Oh, well, you know, they're not necessarily attached to this. Oh, well, they transfer in. Do they really understand it all? I think what you saw from Bo Nix the last really the whole season, but certainly the last few weeks in these rivalry games, in this game where this this was the opponent that just manhandled Oregon twice last season, particularly on the line of scrimmage, made it brutally difficult on Anthony Brown Jr. to pass. Interceptions, you, you name it. This was an opponent that not just because of Knicks, to be clear, but he didn't have to have played in those games to understand the magnitude of what those things meant to the players who did and to what this game meant for this season. And he put it on the line. Say to me, I I can only hope in my position, in my capacity that I can do that justice by asking the right questions and writing the stories as best I can to convey it. Because uh, as I say, that, that to me, those are the sorts of displays of, uh, Yes, metal uh, of resilience and an all-encompassing toughness that that stands out. That's different. And then he can get into the decision-making and every which other little nuance along the way of, of generally playing the game. But like I say, that was a certainly commendable performance to say the least. Elsewhere in the game, and, I, and we spent so much time talking about it because, yes, it's a quarterback and it was the thing that had all the attention all week, but certainly not the only significant moment from the game, which we'll uh, get into a little bit more before setting things up for, for this week's game with Oregon State. Defensively, several players have huge nights, huge nights. And Bennett Williams has a career night from a statistical standpoint. Some of that completely because of how he plays some of that because of how Utah's offense is designed and just the position that he has on the field where he's going to get matched up at the tight end a whole lot. So 14 tackles happens because call it what it is in large part, because Utah is going to throw to the tight end who he's matched up with the overwhelming portion of the evening. And when you target Dalton contained 17 times <laughs> on 38 throws, uh, someone's going to have to be there to tackle him. So, and again, Williams was matched up with them a lot. And they got the better of each other back and forth. That was a pretty even back and forth. But obviously, the moments that came through biggest were the two interceptions. One on a tip pass from Jordan Riley. The other on a just great read. And and Williams talked about how it came from film study. He saw the formation, recognized it. And uh, as soon as the slants came across, he you know he jumps the route and gets the, the second interception which was only a couple plays removed from Nix's interception the other way. A huge night for Bennett Williams. Uh, I don't want to say redemption per se, because I don't think there was there was necessarily redemption 
that was required from the week before. He was on the wrong side of the touchdowns, the two long touchdowns against Washington. In my view, not necessarily because uh, of his own faults and flaws, uh, but because he was being asked to do some things from a coverage standpoint in terms of covering a vast amount of space that he, uh, against speedier players who, who can take advantage of their speed with that kind of space, against bigger players like tight ends and Kincaid, slower players, and some slot guys who are going to play inside a narrower window of space on the field because Utah did not take really any deep shots at all. Most that's hardly uncharacteristic, but they just you don't you don't just do everything that you do all the time. You also look to try to exploit weaknesses in the opponent. They didn't, and Kyle Whittingham admitted as much earlier this week. He said, "Yeah, we we should have taken more. We didn't." And it's not as though Oregon was getting all kinds of pressure on Cam Rising. They got some, but they didn't get any sacks. Yeah, some hurries, some impact, absolutely, but didn't get any sacks. So the point is, is Utah also missed some opportunities and didn't take a whole lot. But in an hour or window, they played into an advantageous situation for Oregon's defense from Williams, from the defensive line, who has been much maligned at times, and they came through with not just a solid performance against the run and bottling up Tavion Thomas between the tackles, but they said afterward, hey, they got a couple of tip passes. Well, yeah, we knew during the week, hey, we, we got to get our hands in the air because of where they're throwing the ball, the trajectory is low, and because of that, we're going to be able to get some tips, so let's do it. I mean, that's that's being outcoached along with being out-executed and players coming up with plays. That's being outcoached. You know, at this point in the season, it's great to have tendencies. It's better to have tendencies you can actually work within and work around and be unpredictable. When you have tendencies that are that predictable and you don't throw any wrinkles, don't do anything different, don't do anything to ensure that your tendencies are done to your advantage. That's how Oregon's defense has the best performance it had, not just of the season, but in a couple of years. Given the caliber of opponent. And how many yards were allowed and how many points were allowed and and a winning team with a really good record and magnitude and everything else. Williams a big night across the defensive line. I mentioned, obviously, Riley had one tip pass. Keon Ware Hudson had a tip pass. Casey Rogers played with his hair on fire. I mean, just relentless. Five tackles, one and a half for loss, a pass breakup. It was all over the place. Brandon Dorless, for him to have not gotten a sack, quite frankly, is is borderline stunning because he was three tackles with a half for loss does not tell his story on the night at all. Not at all. He was a menace. The defensive line played really well. Really, really well. And it that combined with some good playing coverage uh, and a, as I say, a Utah offense that just really was too simple. Too simple for the moment, that's for sure. And did not put itself in particularly advantageous positions. That that was a all-around on the defensive side of the ball for a defense that has not had a whole lot 
that it could say in a positive direction this season. It really hasn't. Some individual performances here or there, a couple plays here or there, to be sure. But as a collective, not a whole lot of really big moments for this Oregon defense this season. That was obviously much needed, but that was so far and away the best performance that it had. That was a season low in yards for Utah. And three interceptions by Rising. And one of four on fourth down. You make a efficient quarterback who had not had any kind of record of beating himself and really made him look bad. I wouldn't say look average, look really bad. You can't you can say, well, you can't even blame him on tip balls. Yeah, you can. In this case, you can. Because these weren't tip balls on on unbelievable athletic leaps. These were tip balls that could be diagnosed because he's throwing it low because they don't throw it deep. And in some cases, he missed one option. It ended up on the pass interference on Stevens. He missed one possibility on the right side of the formation on that play that I honestly, I I couldn't even believe it. It still ends up in positive yardage, but I think it could have been a whole lot more. Some some great plays by the Oregon defense, to be sure. But as I say, some also some missed opportunities and opportunities that were just playing not all that advantageous uh, because of Utah playing to its tendencies too much, leaning on what it viewed as some of its strengths too much and not adjusting or presenting anything different that could have knocked Oregon's defense off a you know a, a p- comfortable position throughout the game, quite frankly, and still managed to convert you know at a pretty decent rate on third down. But again, when they got the fourth, that's where they got stopped. So as a whole, a night that will be remembered for certain individual performances for Knicks, for Williams, for Dante Thornton with a couple of fifty-yard catches, um, for Casey Rogers, certainly. It will definitely be remembered for certain individual performances. And for the defense's collective performance. With time, I think it could be remembered for even more. If Oregon can win this week against Oregon State and then go on to beat USC in a Pac-12 championship game, well then, obviously, then the season ends up in a very different place, in a very high place. And that's... While that may have been the goal for the start of the season and all those sorts of things and the outlook and all that, yeah, but it was put into serious, serious question the week before. I mean, bottom line, let's call it what it is. If all those things don't come together, if Knicks doesn't play, if the defense doesn't play to its level, if all those things don't occur and Oregon loses that game, or if all those if all the performances happen, but you know, but Clark Phillips' tremendous play. If Cam McCormick doesn't tackle Clark Phillips immediately, and that's returned for a pick six, yeah, there's still a couple minutes left on the clock, but for the sake of argument, let's just say that that's, that's the play that changes the game and, and Utah comes out with a, a 24-20 win. Oregon's bound for either the Holiday or the Vegas Bowl. That's the swing here we're talking about. It's either you could be playing in the Vegas Bowl on December 17th or you could be playing in 
as high as the Rose Bowl, or again, we'll, we'll get into the extremes if if the situation warrants after next weekend. It's a pretty big swing. And that's what the collection of individual efforts get you after Saturday night. Now to this week with Oregon State, obviously because we <laughs> because of the nature of the rivalry and we already have a podcast covering Oregon State uh, here with the Oregonian as well, we're not going to get into all the nuances and every uh, detail with the Beavers because we already do that every day. Uh, and for those who are Ducks fans who can't be bothered with that, okay, well, you can invite yourself to go to the other portion of our website or check out our podcast covering Oregon State and uh, my colleague Nick Dashel who covers the Beavers for us. And you can peruse all his work chronicling the Beavers all season long and catch yourself up accordingly. And for those who already do that, we certainly appreciate it. And you're already caught up to speed. So we don't have to go through all the personnel and every which morsel of things. Uh, to me, a couple of the statistical things that for those who whether you've been keeping up to date or not, uh, some of the things to me that stand out for uh, Oregon in this game uh, against the Beavers, beyond the storylines, I'm talking about more to the game of the moment, beyond the, the storylines of rivalry and going back to Corvallis after the loss in 2020 and those sorts of things. We'll get to that. Uh, to me, there are a couple of things that stand out. One, Oregon State's offense uh Obviously, leans really heavily on the ground, particularly in short yardage. Uh, that's hardly a surprise. I mean, that's the way they've been built for some time. If Fenwick can go, that helps them even that much more in terms of just uh, depth of the position and, and available bodies to run with. For Damian Martinez, who's played, obviously, a terrific year for a freshman running back, his splits on third down in particular, are pretty extreme insofar as they kind of underscore what I'm getting at when I say in short yardage, you know, on third and short and, you know, and kind of obvious run situations. Oregon State leans so extremely on running the ball on third and short. It's, as I say, it's beyond tendency. I mean, it's, it's basically exclusive. And I'm not even overstating the case. Again, for those who don't uh, follow this all the time necessarily, on third and three or less, third and short, high probability for an offense to move the sticks and convert. They have run 31 times with 22 conversions. And then if it's fourth down, we're just, just fourth down in general, regardless of distance, they have run nine times with six conversions. So even on the... Sometimes on third down, regardless of distance, that they may have come up short, but you'd assume some of them that they may have come up short on, on runs on third and short. They'll still go for it on fourth, and they convert at a really high rate on fourth. Whereas passing-wise on third and short, they basically don't do it. They've only attempted three passes on third and three or less. They play to their strength. And it underscores exactly how good that strength is, both in terms of their running backs and their offensive line, which is has been, for several years, really extremely well coached by Jim Halchek. 
it shows and underscores exactly how good that strength is. When your splits are that extreme and everybody knows it and you still have success, <laughs> that should tell you all you need to know. It's not like you're catching anybody by surprise here. Like you don't throw the ball on third and short. If you get in third and short or in fourth and short for that matter, we know what's about to happen and they're still doing it. That speaks volumes. So for Oregon's run defense, which has been really good and has had some particularly some pretty good games against better running backs. This is one of the better offensive lines it's going to play. It's, it's on a short list. I would say it might be the best in the conference that it's going to play this season. And I, I don't want to get in comparison by way of talent to Georgia or something, but this is on a short list. And Oregon's front, while it's coming off a nice game, again, pass rush has been not great. So expecting it to show up in this one, probably a bit of a stretch, but needs to be focused more on the ground anyway. That's one area of the game. Can Oregon's defense get Oregon State's offense off schedule to where getting into those advantageous situations on third down is harder? Can they make it more difficult for the Beavers in that way? And then if they do that, are they able to take advantage on those third downs, which has obviously been a huge issue for this defense all season? That's on that side of the ball. On the other side, Oregon State's run defense statistically strongest in the league at the moment, and that's kind of ebbed and flowed by week as to who's top of the conference in the Pac-12, but bottom line, really, really good. They have not played a offensive line as good as Oregon's and a running attack probably quite as talented um, as Oregon's this season. So we'll see exactly how that kind of holds up. But it is good. And Oregon's running attack, yes, obviously gets helped a lot with uh, Nick's being an option and, and his mobility. But put that aside for a moment. Utah has a solid run defense. Yes, they do. But Oregon was held statistically to... 2.4 yards a carry on Saturday. Well, if there's no threat of the running back, then you know Utah, who's really, really fundamentally sound, is going to either load the box a certain way or play a certain way and take certain things away. Hey, ultimately, Oregon's got a really good offensive line. Competitive advantage over Utah's defensive line at front seven. Did they or didn't they have some degrees of success? And the answer is largely not great. You know, Noel Whittington had 10 carries for 53 yards, and that's quite good, but Bucky Irving was bottled up pretty well. I mean, you got to call it what it is. He had 10 carries for 20 yards, the longest of them being 10. So he had nine carries for 10 yards. That's, that's tough sledding against an Oregon State defense that statistically this year has made, obviously, huge leaps and is playing really well, at not just as a whole, but particularly against the run. That's going to be an area that, whether Nix is unbelievably mobile or not, Oregon's ground game has to have, I think, considerably more success than it just had against Utah, for one. Because of this 
statistical oddity uh, that is from how Oregon State's defense plays in pass coverage. Their splits in pass defense, again, for those who don't necessarily follow this for Ducks fans who aren't paying attention every single week, and, and look, I'll be the first to admit, it's not like I've watched every single Oregon State game of the season. Guilty as charged. I got enough going on. But in Oregon State's pass defense and splits are really extreme insofar as eight interceptions inside of the opponent 40. Eight. That's extreme. A touchdown to interception ratio on first down of two touchdowns to seven interceptions, which basically reveals they're getting a lot of picks on opening plays of drives or on the after after a first down, after the first first down of a possession, that next first down, like, all right, the offense, an opposing offense may get, may move the sticks once, may get a conversion once, but if they're still inside their own 40, they're susceptible. And yet, they still play enough zone to keep the top on the coverage and not allow a whole lot of deep passes. So it's not as though they're getting these interceptions by hyper-aggression. They are managing to both keep the top on the coverage on the back end and now allow a lot of deep shots and simultaneously be extremely advantageous in pass coverage to where they have, as I say, eight interceptions inside of opponent territory. Inside the 40. Two more between the 40s. So they have 10 interceptions with no long touchdowns allowed from outside of their own 37. This is in the past game explicitly for Oregon State. They've allowed some deep passes longer than 37 yards, 45, 60, what have you. But the longest pass they allowed is 60 and it didn't result in a touchdown. So the point is, is if the team isn't inside their 40, touchdown to interception ratio is 0 to 10. That's extreme. And like I say, and a large number of those interceptions are coming on first downs, which is the second highest number of interceptions in the country on first down as a pass defense. That's extreme. And again, to do that where you play off to keep the top on the coverage as a whole is, again, credit to Oregon State, it's it's defensive coaches, for how they are able to make all these things work concurrently, which don't necessarily um, add up for those who, who aren't you know seeing it every week into exactly how they're doing it. They are making some things work statistically that are, frankly, really, really hard to to make all those things true simultaneously. So this is not going to be the kind of a matchup where, you know, this isn't for this rivalry where historically speaking, the better team, the significantly more talented team has typically won over the course of history. This is one that, Hey, credit to Oregon state. They're having a great season. They have kept the upward trajectory going. The defense is vastly improved. They lean into their strengths on offense 
Yes, they've had obviously some quarterback back and forth or degrees of uncertainty and all those sorts of things this year as well. And I know there was an injury that played into that. And a defense that also a couple of guys were banged up, but it sounds like a lot of players are, are obviously going to try and give it a go this week. We'll see. And you hope that every banged up player on either side, you hope they all play. This is a huge game in general. It's an in-state rivalry game. For guys who are from the state, it means a ton. It's the final regular season game. It means a whole whole lot to both programs. You want every single player to have the opportunity. Start there. In between the lines and some of the more nuanced moments, like I say, there's some really compelling stuff in terms of how will a explosive Oregon offense with a quarterback that was hobbled a week ago, but certainly looks to be on the path to be on a, a more advantageous and more mobile situation this Saturday. How will that offense find success against a defense that does a great job preventing deep passes, does a really good job stopping the run, and early in drives is extremely opportunistic. Those are a lot of things that Oregon State's defense has done that are, again, credit to them. Having said that, they have not played an offense anywhere near as good as Oregon's. They haven't. Oregon State has beaten the teams they're quote-unquote supposed to beat insofar as a team on an upward trajectory who's doing the things it's doing and having the success it's having. It has taken advantage of and beaten up on some bad teams as basically everyone else in the top half of the league has done. And they absolutely deserve to be in the position they are at 8-3 and three, with the opportunity to get to 9-3 and three, or even at 8-4 and four, a more than successful season. But both teams playing for a whole lot. Forget about whether Oregon State can go to a conference title game and that that's be the only measure of success. Hardly. This would be a massive measure of success. And then you go back to, yeah, and doing it again, at, you know, back-to-back times in Corvallis, this time with fans in the building. And for those on Oregon sideline who took part and they were, frankly, it's, it's almost surprising how few players from only two years ago still are around, but... A lot of them have graduated. A lot have moved on from Oregon's roster. Hardly any of the skill position players at all. I think one in Chris Hudson. I think that's it. You know, the running backs are all gone. Quarterbacks different. Offensive line is is largely the same. But everybody else, they're all gone. Defensively, a ton of guys, ton of guys are different. But for those who are obviously still around, yeah, this this one, uh, yeah, it means it would mean something to say the least. It'd be beyond the stakes of, oh, yeah, they also managed to, to lock up a spot in the Rose Bowl, uh, Rose Bowl in the uh, Pac-12 championship game, a, a potential trip to the Rose Bowl, an opportunity for that. But that aside, this game just means something. And obviously, it's one of those where this game hasn't necessarily had that level of stakes with that these kinds of records in a minute. So it should be a fun setting. Certainly looking forward to it. Appreciate everybody for uh, listening throughout the course of the season. We'll obviously go over this game next week. And uh, if there is a Pac-12 championship game to preview, we will get into that as well. But uh, on this holiday season and Thanksgiving season, just again, I want to take the time to uh, mention everybody. If you don't subscribe to the podcast already, uh, do give us a a like, a five-star review, subscribe. It'll go right in your feed wherever you get your podcast. It makes it very easy. 
and appreciate everybody who already does. For those, uh, obviously, who will be at the game, enjoy it. And everybody have a uh, happy and a safe Thanksgiving on Thursday. And enjoy for those taking part in going to the basketball games and stuff throughout the weekend as well. Enjoy those. I'm probably I'm sure I'll see many of you uh, in Portland and uh, in Corvallis on Saturday. And have a great weekend in what should be a, obviously, a, a sport-filled weekend here in the state. Up and down the I-5 corridor. And what should be a really, really good football game on Saturday. Looking forward to it. And we'll see you next week.